I wonder whether I can interest you in a project which, as I think you know, I have had at the back of my head for the past two or three years. It is the project of a high school for boys in Dublin, on purely Irish Ireland lines. The arguments in favour of the establishment of such a school are irresistible. There is no Irish high school in Ireland. There is no high school for Catholic boys conducted by laymen in Ireland. My idea is, if possible, to fill this twofold need. I had the private school in uh, Cumberland House. I had boys and girls in it. We got on very well. And he used to come and do the Irish for me. And brought in various things from headquarters. Did help with the Irish. And he said to me one day, what do you say if this is all ended someday? And I start a school of my own. Oh, so I want my school. And he says, I think I'll be starting a big school. So not long after, we left Marble Road. And he started the school in Collinsworth House. What I mean by an Irish school is a school that takes Ireland for granted. You need not praise the Irish language, simply speak it. You need not denounce English games, play Irish ones. You need not ignore foreign history, foreign literature, deal with them from the Irish point of view. An Irish school, like an Irish nation, must be permeated through and through by Irish culture, the repository of which is the Irish language. <laughs> I have for years found myself coveting the privilege of being in a position to mould, or help to mould, the lives of boys to noble ends. I interested a few friends in the project of a school which should aim at the making of good men, rather than learned men, but of men truly learned, rather than of persons qualified to pass examinations. And as my definition of a good man, as applied to an Irishman, includes the being a good Irishman, it follows that my school should be an Irish school. 
in the sense not known or dreamt of in Ireland since the flight of the earls. He took the opportunity in 1905 to visit Belgium and spend five or six weeks minutely examining the educational system. Rather interesting to recall the occasion, um, Major John McBride and John O'Leary had organised what you might call a political pilgrimage to Fontenoy in 1905. And um, Pierce went along, but didn't go to Fontenoy, went instead to the Ministry of Education, and as a result got permission, had an interview with the minister, and got permission to visit up to 30 schools, colleges and universities in Belgium. Came back with the material for one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best comparative education reports of that period, where he describes not only the schools he visited, but the basic educational philosophy of the Belgian system. Yes, we were a good while there. Long time we visited all the cities except the age. We only for over a month there. I went back afterwards on my own business to teach. But he and I were well over a month there. He used to go to school, but I'd just wait for him outside. Once or twice I went in with him, but as a rule I waited. I remember in Ghent, he was late coming out. And I made up my mind, I got terribly frightened, made up my mind he'd been killed. But he turned up all right. I was in Ghent, I remember. He was very interested to see how the French and Flemish went. Round Brussels, it's mostly, practically all French. But from Antwerp, um, it's uh, Flemish. When Padraig Pearce set about achieving the second of his three great ambitions, the founding of a bilingual school, he had already seen the first, the editing of a bilingual paper, become a reality. One of these was a preparation for the other, and both were a preparation for his third ambition, the revolution he hoped to bring about in Ireland. In establishing Scoliena, he had, as always, planned carefully. He had expounded his theories in Enclave Solish and elsewhere, he had studied the working of bilingual schools at first hand in Belgium, he had contacted the most distinguished families in the Irish-Ireland movement, had collected money from them and obtained promises that their children would attend either St Enda's or his companion school for girls, St Eta's. All the early students of St Enda's testified to the fact that it was different from other schools, that its headmaster was different and that an outstanding feature of the school was the family atmosphere engendered by the Pierces themselves from the very first day. Princess de Borca, who was afterwards to be the school's last headmaster. Uh, arrived at Cullenswood House, we met Mrs. Pierce, a grand old lady, and she welcomed to like the, uh, to the place and introduced her then introduced us to her son, Parik. Yes. He was a, you'd say he was a shy type of man. That he wasn't a good mixer, like with his own, with uh, his own age. You know, he kept to himself, but he was, he was very ch- chatty in the. In the family, with the family, in the family circle at night time when we used to be down in the supper room. Yes, yes. And he was very talkative with the boys, of course. Yes. But with the, with the, with grown-up people, he seemed to be more or less standoffish. All Scully and his students were welcomed individually by the entire Pierce family, but the headmaster had a special welcome for boys from the Gaeltacht. 
and Brian Shorya came in 1910 from Inisir in the Aran Islands. Padrig Ogo Conora also came from the West. Well, how did me on Marknova Clearly, digging to Buadish Tred Marahigan Buadish Koraha Kudwa Dinios Kanamara Gudin Skull, David Magish and Nakun, the Magician on Antarigada Eek. A smart wound toward Buadam Kubnever. Sweet Lamaragorish and the wound toward Kutanaltishin. Gorwadalin <laughs> And Padraig Og should know just how well-deserved the punishment was, for he was the student, the only one ever, so chastised by Padraig Pierce. His offence, the stealing of a sweet cake from the kitchen, was a grave one in the eyes of the headmaster, firstly because the idea of a boy from the Gaeltach stealing anything appalled him, and secondly because a St Enda's boy who wanted a sweet cake had only to ask for it. Sean Dowling, afterwards a well-known Dublin dentist and a relation of the Pierces through their father's first marriage, went to St Enda's in its second year, 1909. My brother had been there for a year and I had been at the Christian Brothers then and uh, he got on so well there that they took me away and sent me there. I Largely for political reasons because my family was all uh, deeply committed to the Gaelic League and the Restoration and so on. It was more like a university than a school. Uh, uh, to prepare you for the battle in life, you know, it wasn't particularly good, I would say. It would be splendid if you were well off. You know, if you had uh, money to fall back on. But the pupils of, of, of Scalena didn't do particularly well. A statement which might be belied by such well-known names in their different fields as Desmond Ryan and Dennis Wynne, or Jim Larkin or Patrick Toohey. But was Scully in a really only a school for the children of better-off Gaelic leaguers? Seamus O'Bohala, educationalist and author of two forthcoming books on Pierce. Well, there's only one answer to that, I think. 
And that is to quote from the prospectus of 1908. And um, this was issued before the establishment of the school. And here is what it says. As St. Enda's school has not been established with a view to personal profit, it has been found possible to fix the fees both for boarders and for day pupils at a more moderate figure than usually obtains in private schools of a similar standing. Augustalinskiel, the fees were as follows. For day pupils, five, seven, and nine pounds according to age, and for boarding pupils, 32 and 30 pounds respectively. Now, in those days, these were extremely moderate fees. There is hardly a boy of our 70 who does not come from a home which has traditions of work and sacrifice for Ireland, traditions of literary, scholarly or political service. Well, I suppose it would be fair to assume that given the circles in which he moved, given his acquaintances, uh, the general run of pupils in the school would have come from a background of cultural uh, awareness, put it like that, at its widest. Uh, on the other hand, it must be borne in mind that while he described the school as a Catholic high school for boys, it had in the same year a Jewish boy and a Church of Ireland member. So uh, as well as that, I think it's difficult to describe Ulick Moore from County Mayo, Dennis Gwynne from Dublin, and uh, some of the other pupils of the early days in the same cultural or social terms. I think there was a great diversity of backgrounds represented at the school. Um, certainly as regards urban-rural mix, it was unusual. The opening day photograph and assembly was a rather international gathering. You had five from Britain, uh, one from South America, the son of uh, Owen McCarthy, the donor of the McCarthy uh, Cup, the All-Ireland Cup. He travelled from London. You had, I think, boys from most of the Irish counties. So in that sense, it was unusual. I wouldn't at all agree that uh, the role call would have represented a select group, perhaps in one respect only, that of cultural awareness. That was the first thing that struck me, that uh, almost to my uh, <laughs> uh, mind, uh, the sense of um, intimacy between Pierce and his pupils was very different. I would say he was a man with a fixed idea, and that was to uh, recreate the Irish nation. That wasn't so much political in the beginning, but he found that it was essential. He, he really went through a process of evolution. He had a very definite um, dedication, if I may say, to the Gaelic idea. There wasn't much political nationalism, much more intellectual, but very little of the firebrand <laughs> of Pierce in those days. I guess the harbour is changing to. I know some people should be at school. No harbour is moving. No changing to. You are missing some money. Do you think to? No, I am not going to turn up. Um, uh, Gaelge, 
he was a very good teacher and painstaking and very patient with you. Yes. Especially when in his Irish classes. I used to love going to his Irish classes. He taught you on the Mojirik, as you call it, yeah. the Mojirik. And he had his own he had his own little textbooks at the time, on Skrell, I think it was the name of it. Yeah. And um, mostly on the direct method, the ch on the ch work on the charts, you know. In 1906 and 7, Pierce published in lessons, actually direct teaching material, based upon uh, his principles of the direct method. These were illustrated as well, and in his own hand, he in fact earmarked the different items in the pictures, A, B, C, and D. Now later, when in Skolena, he realized that teaching through Irish uh, required adequate teaching aids. He stressed, for instance, the need to have adequate textbooks in Irish. And being a man who didn't wait for others to respond to his uh, call for action, he himself and the teachers in the school planned a series of textbooks in Irish in 1913, the first of which was published, called Unskyl, his own, and a remarkable book illustrated with colored uh, photographs and pictures um, as aids to the learning of the language. This, to my mind, I think, illustrates a an important point about his educational uh, thinking, that it was not uh, totally dominated by theory. It showed a nice blend of both theory and practice. The headmaster and all the teachers in Skorlina had to work very hard, as the school was generally understaffed. But Pierce managed to gather a very talented team around him. In the first year in Cullenswood House, his assistant was Thomas MacDonagh, and the third master was Tomás MacDonnell, formerly of the Leinster College of Irish and Colossia Connacht and Tour Macady. He was a well-known musician and wrote Marshall Scullina for the college. He was in charge of music, dancing and athletics, and he also taught Irish. He was yeah. very strict, you know, and made no allowance for a beginner. I asked the art wash to party my peerish if he would change me and bring me back into his class. And, and uh, in, in the beginning, I was in with Tomás MacDonagh. He started teaching Irish, too. Yes. And he was a, he was a good lecturer. Tomás MacDonagh was a good lecturer when he we went to the university. But you could easily put him off the teaching in the class. You know, I had to draw his attention to something that might happen in the paper, and he was off talking about something not connected with the class at all. I had a tremendous admiration for MacDonough. He was a wonderful character. He was easily distracted, but he wasn't easily fooled. I think he knew he was being, we, we used to, I'm afraid, uh, start him off by asking him a question when he came in and into the class. Uh, if we wanted to escape being heard or tasks and he would go off talking and he wouldn't stop until the bell rang for the next class you know when he was a, when he was a when he was a, a lecturer he was a lecturer in english in a, in 
Stephen, the university at that time, the university college was in Stephen's Green, 86. And his classes used to be packed to the door with all sorts of students, medical students and everything else. Law students who weren't in the supposed to be doing it at all used to come in to listen to MacDonald. And used to describe it as a kook's tour. <laughs> kook's tour. Because you didn't know where he would end up. Well, the central person on the staff after himself was Thomas MacDonald. A man who had a fairly lengthy experience as a teacher, even though he had no primary degree at the time. He did later do a degree in uh, UCD. But he had been teaching in Rockwell and in St. Kieran's Kilkenny. He was also responsible for, I was involved in the early moves towards the formation of the Association of Secondary Teachers of Ireland, the ASTI, in 1909. He came and was certainly one of the pillars of Scalena. There's a beautiful phrase used by Desmond Ryan in relation to McDonough. He said it was quite easy to get him sidetracked in lessons in class and get him talking about any topic under the sun from the rich storehouse of his imagination. And uh, Ryan goes on to describe uh, these particular episodes in class by saying one could get McDonough to describe uh, where Cucullum elbowed Dante. <laughs> and um, Catullus walked arm in arm with Canon O'Leary. I think it, it, it sums up very clearly, I think, to my mind, the richness and the variety of the experience that Scalena was to its students. With the idea of improving facilities and of providing an environment worthy of his pupils, as he saw it, Pierce moved St Enda's from Cullenswood House to the Hermitage in Rathfarnham in 1910. It was in the Hermitage that Willie Pierce had, as Desmond Ryan says, nearly as full and effective control over the school as the headmaster himself. But in the earlier years, his work was more limited. He took us for art classes, but in a very desultory sort of way. He wasn't by any means regular. Uh, he uh, he taught us drawing. I, I don't think anything was done ever in the nature of sculpture by anyone. I never remember that. When I say sculpture, I mean uh, clay, modelling. Nothing like nothing in the solid was done, although that would be his line. He was merely teaching art. I don't remember him as being a good teacher or a bad teacher. Indifferent, very pleasant, very genial, and easily moved to laughter. He was a very nice person, very gentle. Some of Willie Pierce's sculpture adorned St Enders in Cullenswood House, and the help of other artists was enlisted in keeping with the headmaster's ideas of a true education system where religion, patriotism, literature, art and science would be brought in such a way into the daily lives of boys and girls as to affect their character and conduct. However, even the original work of such artists as Jack B. Yeats, George Russell A.E., Beatrice Elvery, Sarah Purser and Edwin Morrow, who did the panel of the boy Cuhullin with his famous motto, did not impress some of the pupils. In Pierce's study there were a few pictures, but they were unimportant. I were they originals? Yes, I remember there were a couple of very bad watercolours by Paddy Tui. And there was a uh, black and white drawing by uh, 
Jack Yates called the man that buried Rafferty, or Raftery. Raftery, right. The man that buried Raftery. But there must have been other pictures there too. Probably the one by Beatrice Elvey on Knockheave may have hung in that room also. Because I remember, uh, it was again, it was Alfred McLaughlin told me this story, that uh, George Moore came to visit him, who was at that time playing cat and mouse act with his brother, uh, what was Morris. It? Morris, yes. Holding out to him that he would provide for the children if he took them away from one school and sent them to another and so on. And they had uh, hoodwinked him a bit by sending the boy, Ulick was his name. He was killed afterwards in the First World War. They sent him to St. Andrews. However, that's irrelevant. Uh, this day, Moore was interviewing Pierce in his study, probably about the boy. And he went around and looking casually at the pictures, and he said to Pierce, what a number of pictures you have here, Pierce and how damn bad they all are. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was, the, that was the standard of the art there. I don't remember any pictures of any importance there. Well, George Moore and Sean Dowling are entitled to their opinion. But Pierce's liking for the works of Jack B. Yeats and George Russell, for example, and his encouragement of the artistic talents of his pupil Patrick Toohey seem to have been justified by time. And few schools then or since have had a journal such as Scoliena had in on Mockheave. It's a rather remarkable journal published in the school by himself, edited by himself, and four numbers of which appeared. It contained quite an amount of writing by the pupils. There's a nice poem written rather joco style uh, in collaboration uh, between Thomas MacDonagh and Dennis Gwynne called The Peacock of Hyderabad. There are some other McDonough items in it as well. There's a two-page set of caricatures by a famous pupil of the school who later became RHA, a very famous artist, Patrick Toohey, who sketched one day in class a number of the pupils and possibly the masters. And whereas a normal headmaster or teacher might be inclined to tear it up or to reprimand the pupil, Pierce merely took it and reproduced it in the next number of Mokhev. Pierce used a very beautiful phrase in regard to what he hoped to do in the school. He said he would hope to introduce his pupils to the companionship of books. When one recalls the later history of our educational system in this regard, one can only say that the pupils who had that particular experience were extremely lucky. It's no accident that indeed it did produce people with an awareness of the um, beauties of literature, not only in English, but in Irish, French, and German. I think it's worth recalling that the curriculum of the school included up to 20 subjects, five modern languages, French, German, and Spanish, Latin, and Greek. Very, very few schools at the moment have a second modern language. Here was a school that struggled financially for eight years and could include three modern languages on its curriculum. The St. Enders boys did well in learning and literature and equally well on the hurling and football fields. As Pierce himself has recounted in the story of a success, plays and pageants were a big feature of life in the school. But money was always a problem and teachers, students, parents and friends 
were often called on to organise or support undertakings outside the college in order to raise funds. One of the most ambitious of these was the St Enda's Fete in Jones's Road, now Croke Park, opened by Douglas Hyde in June 1913. Brother William P. Allen. Douglas Hyde was on that occasion accompanied by the St Lawrence O'Toole's Piper Band. Now, at that time, the band of St Lawrence O'Toole's was in the formative stage. They were still only building up, but they were very enthusiastic members and they made a wonderful success and gave much support through the following years to the undertakings of St. Enders. Now, the programme continued from Monday, June the 9th to Saturday, June the 14th. Very full programme, and uh, as we'd expect, the June weather would be kind to it. But unfortunately, on this particular year, the Midsummer troubles, the summer solstice storms and winds and rains spoiled the whole effect of the performances for that week. The Joneses Road Fete raised little money for St Enders and the school continued to have financial difficulties as it had more or less from the beginning. Eamon de Barra. Father Pierce himself had very limited financial resources and he formed a company to run Scalena, and that company went into liquidation and he took it over by raising loans from friends and some donations, but he was always in financial difficulties and he went to America one time. Uh, Joe McGarrity, the famous Irish leader in America, wrote an article for me one time when I was editing on Come On about Padraig Pierce's trip to America to raise funds for Scalena, and he succeeded in getting quite uh, a substantial sum there. Pierce himself had only £100 of his own money uh, to put into it, and I mean, you don't furnish a school and all that without money, and he had only £100, and it appears that my father financed him in that as well. And we owned two houses in... Blessington Street and one was sold about 1908 and um, Seamus McGlinia who was a clerk, he's still alive Seamus told me in this room that he had a conversation with Father the day that Father was released from prison it was in the 8th of December, 1920. And um, he mentioned what he had done for Pierce and mentioned about Father having told him that he'd to sell the house to pay off the debt. Sheila Barred, Pierce's godchild and daughter of Stefan Barred, one-time treasurer of the Gaelic League. She believes, as do many others, that Pierce made a mistake in removing Scullyana to Rathfarnham. He was very successful in Renala. And um, he was in a populated, very populated area, and um, he got a lot of day boys. And he did so well there uh, that he he'd, um, thought he'd better uh, get a bigger place, and that he was too ambitious. And I remember hearing my mother and others talking at the time that I... that. Uh, 
It was a ridiculous thing to have moved. Because he thought, you see, that the people from Rennell and all those places would go on their bicycles and cycle out to Rathfarnham. Uh, there were no facilities by way of buses or even trams. The trams didn't go past Rathfarnham Castle at the time. And that they'd go out there, you see, because the school was so good and all that. And I think that's where he made the mistake. If he had stayed in Rennell and expanded the school there, it would have been a huge success. He just took it into his head and uh, it was up to everybody else to um, help him out. And um, then he, he didn't pay the staff. Thomas McDonough always had great difficulty in getting money out of him. And even when he was getting married, he couldn't get money. And she said from the previous September, to, um, to 1916, he hadn't been paid any salary either. And it probably happened to others as well. Oh, did I mean, I know there's a woman on the road here and she says, we were the contractors for St. Enders. You know what that means. They're apparently contractors for groceries and all sorts of things like that. And I believe there were a lot of people up around at Farnham and all that, milk and various other people. But I understand that uh, a lot of that was paid off before Margaret died. In the context of what was to happen at Easter 1916, of course, all questions of debts and obligations became just irrelevant. Coming events did cast their shadow over St Enders, but there was a humorous side to it all too, as Desmond Ryan, one of Pierce's most brilliant students and later his biographer, recalled. He had a sword stick and he had a, a glove which he kept an automatic revolver in. Willie and he slept at the top of the house. There was a rope ladder, bicycle ready in case of a raid. And you, you got used to it. I mean, one day he and Willie were going out and, and the boys, so I was uh, the only one in the house. So Pierce met me coming back up the road. He said, are you going to be in all the time? I said, yes. Well, says he, if any G-man comes, throw a gun and shoot him. So I said, certainly, certainly, certainly. And uh, I made great preparations to receive the G-man. I had a rifle loaded. I had uh, an automatic revolver waiting. Even the G-man, of course, never turned up. As always, Mrs. Pierce and the family were closely involved. She lived in this atmosphere. His famous three wishes he wanted to start his bilingual paper. He wanted to start his bilingual school. He wanted to head an insurrection. Well, Maggie said to me, as the senator, she said, oh, I think Pat is rather on for leading the insurrection now. Mother thinks Pat is a young god. But she knew Pat was going to lead the insurrection sometime or other. And uh, sure he was. But there was a very funny incident occurred about that. Long before the volunteers or any hint of uh, risings or anything, an English company decided to shoot an Irish uh, film. So they thought St. Enders was a very good place. It was a real old melodrama. You know, fellas in red coats and fellas in green <coughs> coats. So we got up the avenue they came this day marching. So Mrs. Pierce saw it. Oh, she nearly fell. Oh, God, she says, they're coming to take poor Pat and shoot him. That was the atmosphere. 
But Pierce, while he did encourage a patriotic atmosphere in the school, did not bully his pupils into joining organisations like the Fianna, though many of them did. And later, many of his ex-pupils who were living in St Endes while attending university joined the volunteers. Brian Shoigan. Yeah, when the Gunny on the Yigan, you show me and don't hain, we show me B and don't hain, we show me C and don't hain, Agatin Chin, we show me Colet and don't hain. They made in Chin and Chin, Agas Eganon King and Yigan, even the part in the whole life. I was half made the Machin Chin. Me gave McQueen on his cart, Kavid Yigan Chart and Jack Michirik, Shan Willen, here a Valley Bohan, Valley Borden, Shan Willen, Shan Hollis, and Major. revolution <laughs> physical force or anything like that, but we, Pierce always gave uh, his talks on history. Yes. And he emphasized the part of the, of the various insurrections in Ireland during, during the, yes. that period. There was an emphasis on history. On history. On national aspirations. National yeah. aspirations, but he never yeah. used to bring in anything about uh, like the political side of it, or what, what we should do, you know. Yes. Only that he tried to inculcate a, a, a love for the language and a love for the games and the history of Ireland. When the Fianna were started, I think in 1908, when when they they used to come up to St. Andrews in Rathbarnham. You weren't in the Fianna yourself, were you? Well, we had a branch, like we were connected, Creevena, but we, we yes. were connected more or less, associated with them. You were associated with, yes. But um, Con Colbert, of course, was our drill instructor, and he was one of the leaders in the Fianna movement, the Fianna Aaron movement. Con of Limerick. Con of Limerick. Yes. And uh, he came out every, came out weekly to uh, drill instruction in the wintertime in the gymnasium, and, and during the... Uh, spring and the summer months, we'd be out in the fields, marching around and doing drill out in the fields. In 1970, a couple of years after the death of Senator Margaret Pierce, St Enders was officially handed over to the nation. But there had been difficulties on the subject. Eamon de Barrett. Urwain Vichirag, Bronachian, Eiter, Manarilta, Kunskuldevehon, Agasanson, Derkshi, Nachkat, Skuldevehon, and Echeragus. Well, either at Renirevshi Sasta, Skolena, the Brunner, Eranashon, could he unblien Dernachestoch, Agasanson, 
Well, didn't she lum payere? I guess payu canila wine gar yinus on urshin na the milkham dafar kevishig than gatha took the the vocal in the height of him a man yachtagus pell on. I guess well, Sean Lamas me marhish of an urshin. I guess Sean O'Linchig be in the Aragadish. Innocent so cruel a shin, I guess fame are sold it. The Aramsa and Ochir, the Brunner, Rochrane, Hair and Husus Colena Tra, Vias Anvoralach, Asano Kaichin, Ganenago. Because of its association with Podrig and Willie Pierce and the rest of the Pierce family, it's right that St. Endes should become the property of the Irish nation. But apart from that altogether, it stands as a lasting monument to a brave and pioneer inventor in Irish education. The final word to the educationalist, Seamus O'Bohala. Pierce, in his educational theories and in his practice, was generations ahead of his time. He was in tune with advanced European thinking. And I personally would bracket him with people on the continent at the time who were now looked up to as the pioneers of modern pedagogy, people like Rhine and Leeds in Germany, De Moline in France, and Ferrier in Switzerland. One could also, of course, link him with Rabindranath Tagore in India and recall the phrase used by Yeats, Pierce is doing for Ireland what Tagore is doing for India. <laughs>